Hi, this is Jim. And this is Bax. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Broad Street Hockey Radio. I'm Steph Driver, your favorite mistress of mayhem, and I've put together something that I really hope you'll enjoy. So while Bill and I are fairly new to Broad Street Hockey, we've recently hit 100 episodes of Broad Street Hockey Radio. These 100 podcasts have taken place over nearly eight years, four coaches, two GMs, zero Stanley Cups. There have been countless players to suit up for the orange and black when, you know, not really so countless. I'm just lazy. There have been multiple hosts of Broad Street Hockey Radio and infinite, unending, unrelenting heartbreak. This season has been crap. The team is bad. The coach is bad. The 50th anniversary jerseys are bad. Everything is bad. But it hasn't always been this way. Behind all of the anger, the apathy, the disgust, the displeasure, there's a hockey team we love. There's a sport we love. It's buried under a lot of shit right now, but it exists and it's there. And that's what brings us all together. So please join me and my guests as we walk you through some of our favorite Flyers moments over the years. Done with that Broad Street hockey twist you love so much. Cursing. It's cursing. So I'm going to go back to something that didn't happen all that long ago, little less than two years ago. But the reason why I want to talk it through is because I think a lot of people are sort of losing faith a bit in the Flyers as an organization, maybe the Flyers in terms of management. And I just want to go back to to a four-day period in 2015 when everyone in the Flyers fan base became very, very, very excited about the idea of Ron Hextall as general manager. This started at the 2015 NHL draft, and it went until four days later, June 29th. So it would be June 26th through June 29th. June 26th was the NHL draft, and the Flyers with the seventh overall selection. Everyone was hoping they were going to get Ivan Provorov, and this really was more of a selection that kind of was a no-brainer, even if Zakharensky has been really, really good for Columbus. It was more just everyone hoping to God that Provorov slipped to the flyer spot. And for once in Philadelphia, it actually worked out the way everyone wanted it to. The Devils, for some reason, picked Pavel Zaka over both Provorov and Morensky. And the Flyers got Ivan Provorov, who this year has been pretty awesome. But it didn't stop there. That was the best part, is that the Flyers then took advantage of Travis Konechny, who slipped all the way down the draft board, to trade up and get him 
in the latter half of the first round. Now, I remember when we did our draft preview on Broad Street Hockey for this draft, Konechny, we, we, we ranked him in the top half of the draft in terms of talent. I remember Kurt actually would, would have been fine with the Flyers taking him up at seven, which to me seemed a little bit, little bit ambitious, but the fact that he was even in that conversation shows how big of a steal they got, and the fact that he's now on the Flyers in his age 19 season also shows that. So the Flyers got two players who, within a season, made it to the NHL and look like at least above-average NHLers, possibly more. Now, for most teams, really for Philadelphia in general, that would that would be it. They had a good draft. Everyone's happy. That pretty much carries to the offseason. But the Flyers weren't done. Day two, the following day, the Flyers found a way to trade Nicholas Grossman and the contract of Chris Pronger for actual assets for Sam Gagne, who is legitimately a good NHL player, and a draft pick for Nicholas Grossman, who, quite frankly, made Andrew McDonald look like a good defenseman. And Chris Pronger, who was employed by the NHL at the time and clearly couldn't play. And the fact that he was stuck on the roster made it so the Flyers always had to go through cap gymnastics to make anything work. They found a way to dump them off on the Coyotes and get something back for them. So in two days, the Flyers added two very, very good prospects, both of whom have panned out, and improved their team in the short term by addition by subtraction, and then also just by straight addition, because Sam Gagne ended up being at least moderately useful to the team, especially in the second half of last year, and was probably misused because he's been very good for Columbus. But that's a story for another day. And again, two days of really good things. Again, this is what you would think, oh, nothing more is going to happen. This is just a good run. Maybe in free agency, something something good. They'll add some players, some, some, some middling talent. But no, no, there was one more event that was going to happen. After one day of a break, we got one of the funniest trades, in my opinion, over the past 10 years. And I guess it's probably not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things because third round picks, well, they're valuable, but they're not game changers. It was just the fact that Zach Ronaldo, who quite frankly was delivering results below that of a replacement level NHL player was traded to the Boston Bruins, who during that same period had proceeded to lose their collective minds with Don Sweeney as GM, the Flyers found a way to get the Boston Bruins to take on Zach Ronaldo's contract and provide a third-round pick in return. The amazing thing is that all this happened in a four-day period, and and I just remember being on Broad Street Hockey, being in our, our Slack chat room, and we all were just kind of wondering if there was any way this streak was going to end, because it seemed like every day Ron Hextall was pulling another rabbit out of his hat. And it, it was just an awesome feeling because it's been so rare, especially in recent years as a Philadelphia fan, as a Flyers fan specifically. Specifically the Flyers. To see the Flyers making smart moves. Paul Holmgren's back half of his tenure as GM was kind of a mess. And Ron Hextall, who had started out his tenure a little bit underwhelming. The the Hartnell for Umberger trade certainly did not pan out the way he wanted it to. But then during a four-day period, he changed the entire narrative surrounding his GM ability. Which, 
was awesome because it finally gave Flyers fans hope. And it's been a while since Flyers fans actually had real, tangible hope for the future. And it's amazing to think that in a four-day period, it all turned just because of a few really, really good moves. This is Kelly, and this is the story of the time that one day changed the Philadelphia Flyers forever. It was a warm day. It was summertime, so we were out of the hockey season, and I personally thought that we were kind of done with Flyers news for the year. But this was 2011. It was the year after the super fun cup run in 2010. And the Flyers had definitely not performed as well as they had the season before. And to the surprise of I'm willing to bet just about everyone, Paul Holmgren decided to completely gut the team and trade Mike Richards and Jeff Carter pretty much at the exact same time. And I'm pretty sure the entire city of Philadelphia held its breath after it happened. So it's easy now to think back on these trades as good for the Flyers. We got a lot of good players back. Jacob Voracek, Wayne Simmons, I guess. Braden Shen, if you want to count him and his power play goals, I guess he's good. But at the time, this was a shock that for me was very hard to take. I'm not sure if you remember it, but there was a picture of Mike Richards and Jeff Carter taken, I think, the year that they were drafted by the Flyers. And it was the two of them underneath the sign in the locker room that read, we supply everything but the guts. And I remember I used to have that picture as my background on my computer. And I remember thinking after both Richards and Carter were signed to contract extensions, that these guys were going to be Flyers forever, that they were going to play their whole careers here, that we were going to see them win a cup for us, that they were going to be essentially our Pat Kane and Taves. That's what I was thinking. I really, really thought these guys were going to be the core of the Flyers forever. So when they were traded, I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. I distinctly remember I was on my lunch break from work. And at the time, I was running a silly Facebook page called Dan Carcelo's Mustache that was shockingly popular and... Um, had a lot of followers. So when it happened, when I heard the first one happened, um, I immediately went onto Facebook and posted about it. And, you know, the firestorm of commenting began. And then we heard about the second one. First, it was Carter to Columbus. And then I think it was maybe an hour later, Richards got sent to LA. And it was just bang, bang, all of a sudden, this was a different team. 
it wasn't the team that I was rooting for. It was a totally different team. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't, I don't even know anything about these guys. Who is Jacob Voracek? I remember hearing that Braden Shen was the best player not yet in the NHL. So, you know, you're like, okay, that, that seems good. But, but who are these people? What is this team going to be? You may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? And it was, it was crazy. We had seen these two win Calder Cup in with the Phantoms during the lockout year. You know, they did that. And like I said, these were guys that that I expected and I think a lot of people expected to play 15 years with the Flyers and see a lot of success here and to know that that wasn't going to happen was just crazy. It's not very often that a team trades its two best players. And Paul Holmgren did that in the span of an hour. And while we might be able to say it was good now, the time it was crazy, and is a day that I'll never forget. Hey everybody, what it do, what it do, it's your boy Albert, also known as Albutt, also known as The Butt, also known as AK69, also known as the most interesting butt in the world. And before I get started, I just want to take a moment to thank Steph Driver, also known as Stephalicious D, also known as Stephanie Tanner, also known as the worldwide charity Unistef, for putting this all together. Uh, since Broad Street Hockey Radio relaunched earlier this year, the quality of the show and all the discussions that happened there really have never been higher. And Bill and Kelly and Steph and Charlie really are some of the hardest working people out there, so I really hope you all appreciate them as much as I do. And I'm just really glad to be a part of this whole thing. So now that I'm done lying about those guys, let's get down to business. Now, we all know that former Flyers general manager Paul Holmgren didn't exactly have the best tenure here in Philadelphia. There are a number of questionable moves he made during his time here, from trading away every draft pick imaginable to pick up questionable talent, to long-term signings that will continue to hurt the Flyers for years to come. Looking at you, Andrew McDonald. And hell, if you go deep enough into Flyer or Twitter and huff enough paint, it has to be oil-based, not latex. I cannot stress this enough. You'll discover that his most painful move was trading Drew Doughty to the Kings for absolutely nothing. God, that move still makes my fucking blood boil. Anyway, despite having a resume packed with crappy moves and questionable signings, this story isn't about any of the Paul Holmgren boners that most Flyer fans would remember. As it is with a lot of things in life, sometimes the strangest things go unnoticed and forgotten, lost to the sands of time until they are brought up again by a grown adult who goes by the butt on a hockey podcast. Sorry, sorry, just got a little carried away there. Anyway, without further ado, submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, I call this story The Tale of Gauging Interest. The date was November 29th, 2011. The GOP was gearing up for another bloody primary to see who would try and unseat then-current President Barack Obama in the 2012 election. We Found Love by Rihanna and Calvin Harris was at the top of the Billboard Hot 100, where it would remain for approximately five years. And I just found this out today, but comedian Patrice O'Neill died on this day after complications from a stroke. Patrice was a really funny dude, and I remember being really upset when he died, so that really sucked. 
Anyway, yeah, back to hockey. The Flyers, having just traded away their two superstars in Mike Richards and Jeff Carter, were off to a surprisingly decent start, sitting with a 13-7-3 record. Pretty much the best hockey you could expect was happening, and the Flyers were playing some inspiring stuff. Never satisfied with a good thing and always one to look a gift horse in the mouth, Paul Holmgren knew he had to make a move to somehow improve a team that really didn't have any glaring deficiencies. Enter Andreas the Nodes Nodal. Drafted 39th overall by the Flyers in an incredibly deep 2006 NHL draft, fans had some high hopes for the Austrian winger. Now, I really don't want this story to be some rewriting of history where certain people are made to look smarter and then others are made to look dumber. So I'll just say outright that Andreas Nodal was really nothing special. He was coming off a year where he scored 22 points in 67 games. Not bad, I suppose, for a depth player, but not exactly irreplaceable. And through 12 games in the 2011-2012 season, he had only registered one assist with the Flyers. So he was a relatively high-drafted, relatively young, relatively underperforming winger on a team that had no real need for additional offense. So in that regard, I really can't fault Paul Holmgren for maybe looking at Nodal as expendable. Would he be able to get much in return for him if he shopped him around to other teams? I really don't know the answer to that, and probably nobody actually does. But you gotta think that maybe he was worth something. But instead of putting Nodal on the trade block, Holmgren thought the better idea would be to place the dude on waivers and try to send him down to the then Adirondack Phantoms. Now, as I just said before, putting Nodal on waivers and potentially losing him for absolutely nothing wasn't exactly a huge risk for the fate of the franchise. They weren't going to win a Stanley Cup or lose one based on what happened to Andreas Nodal. So that's not really the boneheaded move here. Now, the real head-scratching nonsense came when Holmgren was asked about the move. So, side note, I really tried really, really hard to get the audio of Paul Holmgren's comments and just could not find them. But I had this all mapped out in my head already, so, like, the next part is just going to be me playing the part of Paul Holmgren. I'm really, really not that good at impressions, so just bear with me. Anyway, let's listen in on the totally real and absolutely 100% verifiable audio of Paul Holmgren after waving Andreas Nodal. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Paul Holmgren, uh, general manager of Philadelphia Flyers. Someone just asked me about waving Andreas Noodle. Uh, I got the following to say. Uh, Andreas hasn't played much. Uh, we'll just gauge interest and see what happens. Uh, we'll decide his fate tomorrow after we find out whether he clears or not. I don't know if my point was exactly made the first time, so I'm going to play that again and pay really close attention to what Paul Holmgren says here. Uh, Andreas hasn't played much. Uh, we'll just gauge interest. Yeah, what the fuck is that? You don't gauge interest for a player by putting him on waivers. Once you put him on waivers, he's exposed to any team to just pick him up for free. You gauge interest by making phone calls, asking GMs if they're willing to trade for the guy. If the answer's no, then maybe put him on waivers. But if the answer's yes, then you can actually get something in return for him. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense. So I wasn't at Broad Street Hockey when this happened, but luckily uh, someone who was there when it happened offered to come on here and help me. So uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Travis Hughes. Thanks for joining me, Travis. Yeah, bro, no problem, Albert. Uh, yo, Albert, I gotta say, you're looking totally handsome and really swole right now. 
Jeez, Travis. Thanks, man. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, bro. No problem, man. You're like one of my favorite people at Broad Street Hockey. Way better than Kurt. Kurt sucks, dude. That guy sucks. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Uh, but anyway, would you mind reading what you wrote the day that Andreas Nodal got waived and subsequently picked up by the Carolina Hurricanes? Oh, yeah, no problem, bro. This is what I wrote. This is why you don't gauge interest in a player by placing them on waivers. It's very obviously could have been had via trade, even if just for a pick or something, if Holmgren and co. had just done his homework on this. If it's cap space you want, get a pick for him. Something is better than nothing. Instead, he's gone for nothing, and a little piece of the Flyers forward depth is gone with it. It's not an earth-shattering tragedy or anything, especially because Nodal is a good dude who can play, but just fell out of favor here, and hopefully he'll get a chance in Carolina. But it's still one of those moves that make you scratch your head, brah. I could not have said it better myself, Travis. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, no problem, brah. I gotta go uh, hit the waves. I gotta hang 10 and stuff, brah. I'll see you later. Okay. Uh, yeah, anyway, as Travis said, this really just makes absolutely no sense. Did it really hurt the Flyers? No, not really. I mean, Nodal went on to play like 50 more games in the NHL, and now he's in the Austrian League doing kind of okay, I guess. It's just one of those things that I just don't understand. To this day, I'm still kind of confused as to why Paul Holmgren said this. If he really didn't like Andreas Nodal, he could have just said, well, we didn't want him, we didn't see him as a part of the future of the franchise, and just done the same exact thing, and I wouldn't really have a problem with it. Because, like I said, Andreas Nodal, not really that great of a player. But in the history of Holmgren moves, when you have this paired with all the other crazy shit he did, it just makes you think, did Holmgren actually know what he was doing? And that's kind of my whole point with this story. I don't think it's like a big earth-shattering thing that happened for the Flyers, but it's just kind of weird that they had a GM that said crazy shit like this and didn't get fired for a few years after this. Anyway, that's my story. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Steph and everyone at BSH Radio for letting me tell this story. And I really hope you enjoyed it. Albert L. Brent Gold. This is Brent Gold. And this is a story of Game 6 of the 2010 Stanley Cup Finals. The date was June 9th, 2010. It had been an unusually warm start to the summer in Philadelphia. Not exactly the type of weather that screams high-intensity hockey. But there they were regardless, playing for the right for one last do-or-die, winner-take-all game. Ole Jokinen must score to keep the Rangers' season alive. He's 5-for-9 this year in shootouts. 40% for his career as he starts from way back near his own goal line and picks up the puck with lots of speed. Roaring on it is Jokinen. The deep, the save by Boucher, and the Flyers are going to the playoffs! Chicago was heavy favorites going into this series. After all, the Flyers just barely snuck into the playoffs that year, needing a miracle shootout win and an epic comeback just to make it that far. But that didn't matter now. All that mattered was this game. They would trade goals for the first two periods, but Tugley, I mean, Bufflin and Sharp for the Hawks, Hartnell and Briere for the Flyers. However, disaster struck late in the second with Andrew Ladd scoring what was then the cup-winning goal. Everyone knew the Hawks were the better team that series. But the best team doesn't always win. Just ask the Caps and Pens who were eliminated by the 8th seeded Habs earlier that postseason. It looked like gravity was going to win. This is Philadelphia, after all. I mean, sure, the Phillies won two years prior, but before then? 25 years of futility. 
But then something strange happened. The Flyers, despite being outshot by an almost two to one margin to that point, started to press. Could it happen? Does this team that we left for dead in early December when they were 13th in the conference and had a fired coach have another comeback in them? This team that collapsed in March and needed a Faust to deal with Satan to win a shootout against Lundqvist on the last day of the season just to make the playoffs. Have another comeback in them? The same one that came back from an 0-3 hole to Boston last month in that series and a final game of that series. Do they have another comeback in them? Then Hartnell scored! That beautiful Yukon Cornelius caricature come to life who can't skate. Him? Let's do this! They had come back from the dead one last time. Game seven in Chicago, baby. Book it. I could hear the sphincters of everyone in the greater Chicagoland area contract after the Flyers applied more pressure. And there's Carter with the puck, with the empty net in front of him, and, and, he, he missed? What? You're supposed to bury that! My dog scores on that play! Yeah! It's okay, we'll get him in overtime, just like we did in game three. Got another one, Giroux? Good. On to overtime. We got this, 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 we got this. We got this. Hey, 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 what, what's, why is Kane celebrating like that after a harmless angle shot that Leighton got with his pads? I didn't see any goal lights or refs pointing at the net. Oh, no. No, that, that, that couldn't have been, no, no, no! What is going on here? I need a replay! <sighs> Crap. It was surreal and yet somewhat satisfying to see the cup presentation in Philly, even with another team getting it. Sure, they lost, but they gave it a hell of a ride. It took a good week to get over it before I could think about that playoff run and smile. But whenever I think of 2010 in general, my first thought goes right to that magical run they had, even if it had an unfortunate end. And I smile ear to ear. Steph this is the story about how the Flyers found the great one. The day is September 20th, 2014, and it's Flyers training camp. This year it features stars like Claude Giroux, who was injured, Jake Voracek, a newly acquired Michael Delzato, brand new first round draft pick, Travis Sanheim, a 30 year old rookie forward from France, and a 33 year old rookie goalie. This day, all eyes were on the six foot three, 215 pound, massive guitar playing, hair flipping, face punching bundle of muscle and testosterone, Jay Rose Hill. Jay Rose Hill had been 41 fights in the NHL and 95 in the AHL prior to this season. He had eight NHL points. Eight. E-I-G-H-T. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points in the NHL. Five of those were goals. This is a guy who had his niche. He knew what he was good at, and damn it, it was punching people in the face. What we didn't know, and what he didn't know, was that he was faster than Jake Voracek, Zach Ronaldo, and Michael Raffle, and every other player on the Flyers team. Jay Rosehill made it from goal line to goal line in 5.5 seconds. 
And afterwards, no one had the courage to approach this man and talk about his achievements. He had to call attention to himself and remind them that this is a big fucking deal. But this is a man who clearly knows about speed. In December of 2007, years before he was a Philadelphia Flyer, Jay Rosehill was arrested and charged in Binghamton, New York for third-degree grand larceny. He stole a car. As the story goes, an employee from Madame Orr's, a strip club in Binghamton, New York, started her car, went inside to let it warm up. This is reasonable. You know, upstate New York is cold in December. When she went back outside, the car was gone. Shortly after she made a report to police, an officer spotted the vehicle pulling into a parking lot of Exhibition Gentlemen's Club. The distance between these two establishments is 0.2 miles, or 0.3 kilometers for our non-American listeners. In fact, Google suggests you walk, which would take four minutes. But Jay Rosehill said, fuck that, and cut three minutes and 47 seconds from his travel time. Jay Rosehill knows about speed. He was the fastest Philadelphia Flyer. He beat Nick Schultz, who was second fastest Philadelphia Flyer. And that, my friends, is the story of fastest Flyer Jay Rosehill. Kelly Hinkle again. This is the fun story of how once the Flyers made my very best friend hate me for a solid six months. The year was 2000. It was a simpler time. We were younger. The Flyers were an actually good hockey team. Everything was fun. You know, nothing like now. So it was game three of the Flyers-Penguins Eastern Conference semifinal season. The Flyers had lost games one and two at home, which at the time was the first Union Center, and they were headed to Pittsburgh to play game three at the Igloo. So, I started my night at my friend Robin's house in South Philadelphia. We were going to watch the game together, and then I was going to head off to my best friend Sherry's 21st birthday party, which was taking place at a bar in Center City that I can't remember, but she was in college at LaSalle at the time, so all the activities were taking place in Philly. So, like I said, I'm at my friend Robin's house, and we're watching the game, It's a good one, exciting, and it heads to overtime, which in the playoffs is always exciting. And we are kind of poised for, you know, a fun finish. And then the first overtime ended. Okay, that happens sometimes in the playoffs. Second OT begins, and we are thinking, okay, we'll probably see this game end here. Nope. Second overtime goes... And nothing happens. It's not every day you see a third overtime, so, you know, we were excited. This was, this was going to be good. But then the third overtime came and went. 20 minutes. Not a goal. And I'm starting to look at my watch and think to myself, hmm, this is uh, starting to get a little bit late. Just a bit of backstory. Sherry knew how much I loved the Flyers. And she knew that the playoffs were kind of a big deal. So even though she wasn't really a hockey fan, she totally understood when I told her that I was going to probably be a little bit late for her party 
because I was going to watch the Flyers game. No big deal. She was going to be celebrating with her sorority sisters. She would be having fun. Wouldn't even notice that I arrived, you know, half an hour late. No biggie. But to this point, um, it was getting pretty late. And I started to think, hmm, should I leave? But nah, I can't go much longer. So I stuck around. The fourth OT started. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, boys, let's, let's end this game. It's getting a little crazy. Um, but it didn't end there either. We ended up at five overtimes. And you might remember that it was Keith Primo, who at the time was our captain and an excellent captain at that. He was pretty beloved when he was here. And it was him who, seven and a half periods later, finally put it in to beat the Penguins two to one. I think it was two to one. That might be wrong, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. But anywho, we won, and that's what's important. So I rolled in to this 21st birthday party sometime after 1 a.m., very, very, very late, and met up with a very, very, very drunk and very, very, very angry Sherry who didn't really want to hear it when I told her that we had just witnessed one of the best games ever, something that would go down in history, and something that we would be remembering 17 years later. She wasn't super interested in it. So it took me a long time to live that one down. It took a little while for her to stop being mad at me for missing her big, big party. But if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't regret it at all, because... It was pretty special to see. Kurt R. Hello, this is Kurt here for Broad Street Hockey Radio, episode number 100. Before I start, I'd like to very quickly say that Albert sucks. Wrong. Just needed to get that out there. With that said, I'd like to take a few minutes here and talk about the playoff series in which Peter Laviolette lost his goddamn mind, otherwise known as the 2011 Eastern Conference quarterfinals against the Buffalo Sabres. See, here and now... It's easy to think fondly upon coaches of the past as we sit in the season in which Dave Haxtell has managed to infuriate a healthy portion of the fan base after Craig Berube spent two seasons doing largely the same. Most would agree that Peter Laviolette has shown to be a good NHL coach, even though reasonable minds can disagree about whether he should have been fired by the Flyers in 2013. But any reasonable mind would agree that Laviolette just went totally off the rails in those 2011 playoffs. It was obviously true at the time, and it's only become even more glaringly true since then as the Flyers proceeded to just totally gut this team across the four seasons that followed this one. Think about it for a second. If a few things that did happen ended up happening a bit differently, where is this team now? Who's on it? Would they be better or worse than they are now? These are questions we'll never have the answer to, and it's largely because of this bullshit series. So much bizarre shit happened during these seven games. I'd love to craft this smooth, telltale narrative of what happened during this series, 
but I don't know if I can, and I feel like doing so would do an injustice to what was truly a series that consisted of two teams and coaching staffs running around like a bunch of nincompoops. And I guess nothing really captures that sentiment, like the way the Flyers handled their goalie situation during these seven games. So you all remember 2010-11 was Sergei Bobrovsky year, where he came in at training camp, unexpectedly won the starting job, played fairly well through the regular season, yada, yada, yada. So he plays game one, loses a tight one nothing contest to Ryan Miller, comes out in game two and gives up three goals in the first period, and that was it. Like, Sergei Bobrovsky's Flyers career, for all intents and purposes, ended at the first intermission of Game 2 on Saturday, April 16th, 2011. Brian Boucher came in after that, proceeded to start the next few few games, taking the Flyers' number one goalie out of the starts net. Now, yes, 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 sure. Replacing Sergei Bobrovsky with Brian Boucher made that Flyers team worse. But, okay, Teams have shuffled goalies around in playoff series before. It happens when one guy isn't playing well. And to Laviolette's credit, Boucher played well for three games. Closed that game too strong, picked up a win, did well in a game three win. Uh, and then ha- the team had another one nothing loss in game four, in which he t- obviously played fine. Not his fault when you lose one nothing. Laviolette's gamble may have paid off. But then game five happened, and Boucher was just terrible in game five. Oh, man. Uh, came out in the first period, and as the Flyers kept putting shots on Ryan Miller, he gave up three goals, including a couple of absolute stinkers. Uh, so then, you know, Flyers went down 3 nothing in a pivotal game in a tied series. So you took your shot. It worked for a while. The trail went cold. Now you go back to your starter, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. If you're Peter Laviolette, rather than go back to your starter... What you do is send out Michael Layton. Michael Layton, who... You know, yeah. That one. That Michael Layton. 2010 playoffs happened, guy had back surgery This during this season, played some time with the Phantoms, got one regular season game with the Flyers, and then the coach decides that a good time to put him back on the NHL ice is in Game 5 of a tied playoff series. For fuck's sake, Peter, what are you doing? And yet again, Laviolette was bailed out by this iffy decision as Leighton was totally adequate for most of that game and only gave up one goal. Ended up being up in overtime, the uh, game loser. But he only gave up one goal for two and a half periods. Can't complain that much. So then Laviolette goes back to that well again. Figure he keeps, you know, keeps hitting on 17, keeps drawing twos and thinks this one's good. I'm going to get it again. I'm going to get it again. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go for the hat trick here. I'm going to start Michael Layton in game six in an elimination game. That went exactly the way you'd think it would, as Layton would become the third goalie in this series to give up three goals in the first period of the game, which I'm sure is an NHL record. I'm sure no other team has been that terrible in a series, right? It has to be. I'm I'm not fact-checking this. I'm just assuming no other team sucks that much. So then Lavi would, you know, go back to Boucher, not his starter, not his starter, Bobrovsky, but Boucher, who'd backstop the team through wins in games six and seven before falling apart, much like the rest of the team did against Boston. In short, this series spent so much time 
on Peter Laviolette's goalie carousel that you could probably find a ride commemorating it at the Flyers' Wives Carnival. It was an incredible showing and lack of patience for a guy who's generally been able to keep a pretty even keel in his time as an NHL coach. And there were, like, long-lasting impacts here. Remember when Ed Snyder, poor one out, came out after that season and said, we will never have these kinds of goalie problems again? That happened because of what Peter Laviolette did in this series. This mattered. We're not done with you yet, Peter. We are not done yelling at you yet. I have some things to say to you. Because while his goaltending decisions were certainly the most consequential decisions of his time with the Flyers, they weren't even his most inexplicable decision of this series. No, 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 no. That came in game five, before which Jeff Carter got injured and the Flyers needed someone to replace him. That replacement ended up marking the NHL debut of one Zach Ronaldo. Yes, his debut. A player who, at the time, he had just completed his first year with the Phantoms, was in the middle of a or had completed a season in which he had more suspensions, not game suspended, suspensions, four, than goals, three. A season in which he had more penalty minutes, 331, than goals multiplied by 100. And yet Peter Laviolette, in the middle of a series that had gotten pretty chippy, decided this was the time for that player to play in his first ever NHL game. Now again, this wasn't super consequential. He played a minute and 56. He played three shifts, hit a couple guys, didn't really do anything. But again, just another thing that made you think, hey, Peter, have they, uh, you check your meals up in there at Buffalo? You sure they're not putting acid in the middle of your uh, chicken for dinner? And even beyond Laviolette, like I've talked about him a lot, but there was just so much weird shit that happened in this series. This was the JVR series, remember? When JVR came out, it was incredible the whole time, and it continued against Boston. And this led people to, you know, say, hey, JVR is finally turning the corner. Then you know what happened next. The Flyers, you know, gave him that giant contract. He he had a year in 2011-12 that was pretty good, but ultimately not what fans expected, ultimately not what the Flyers expected. And then they traded him for Luke Chen. That happened because of the expectations he set in this series. Remember Vili Leno? This was the Vili Leno series, too, where he made himself probably $27 million, probably some, you know, $15 million more than he otherwise would have made because he scored a goal in game six of this series to win it in overtime for the Flyers in Buffalo. And because of that goal, Buffalo then went and paid him $27 million. That happened because of this series. There, there's, there's so much. I, 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 I haven't even talked about Ryan Miller yet. Like, there, there's so much to get to here. Like Ryan Miller, remember when he's like, eh, the, the Flyers mass murder. Before we get any further, I'd just like to add one thing. Uh, if Mike Richards thinks we're getting away with murder, I don't know what he just got away with. Mass murder? Like, are we stepping up a notch? Unbelievable. Like that. That was this series. And I mean, I guess to Ryan, in Ryan Miller's defense, yes, that was the court, that whole mass Miller murder comment, mass Miller, see what I did there. The whole mass murder comment was, yes, one of the corniest things any human has ever said. But I don't know if I saw the other team sending out Zach Ronaldo to make his NHL debut in game five of a series, I'd maybe think they were trying to kill me, too. God, so many questions to be asked about this series. Why did it all happen? Where would we be if it hadn't? 
I don't know, man. What a, what a dumb series. Thank you for listening, everyone. Albert still sucks. Wrong. Enjoy the rest of BSH Radio, episode number 100. Bill Bats. Well, I'm told for the 100th anniversary show, I got to do some sort of history, and I have to take you back to my favorite game in Flyers history. It's March 2004. Uh, it's, it's Flyers Senators. The Flyers are both looking to establish themselves as one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference and seek revenge against a uh, Ottawa Senators team that crossed the line the last time they played Martin Havlat. Punk-ass Martin Havlat. Just decided to swing his stick like Marty McSorley at Rat Mark Recchi. I have no love for Mark Recchi. He has won everywhere but here. He will from now on be referred to as Rat Mark Recchi. He was a rat. But he was wearing the orange and black at the time. And Martin Havlat swung his stick at his face. And the Flyers were looking for some semblance of revenge in this game. And instead of extract it through normal Broad Street bully means, they just decided to roll the team. They were up 5-2 on the Senators with a couple of minutes left. And, you know, Rob Ray and Donald Brashear were out on a shift together. So if you thought you were going to get to see some fireworks, here was the point. The game was out of hand, and you have Huggy Bear himself, Donald Brashear, against Rob Ray. This is where the fight is going to happen. Right off the face-off, Brashear looked like he wanted to go with Ray. They were back and forth. It looked like this was the thing. They were going to be going at each other. Ray kind of just avoided him and went after, at, a, after, at the end of the shift, went after Flyers defenseman in front of the net. And then Brashear just jumped in and said, no, you're fighting me. Because this is what's going to happen. I, this is how hockey works. When you are a fighter, you have to fight other fighters. And when you're Martin Havlat and you swung the stick at Mark Recchi, you have to answer the bell. The Ottawa Senators acted in a way that was just against the code of what is hockey. And that is why we ended up with a game in which they were 419 penalty minutes, not quite 420, that would be pretty nice, but we had 419 penalty minutes in this end of season, mostly meaningless game, but it was just because the Ottawa Senators couldn't conduct themselves in the way that was necessary. You had Robert Esch fighting Patrick Alleen, like, Chico is fighting this bum goalie. Not because he wanted to, because he had to. Because this is what you do. This is the reason that after everything started to happen, Ken Hitchcock had a meeting on the bench. And there weren't many guys left on the bench at this point. But he is sitting there with Michael Hanzus, John LeClaire, and Mark Recchi. The best, the, the number one line. And he basically told them, you have to go out and do what you need to do. And everyone fought in this game. Everyone, except that punk, that punk Martin Havlat, who if you went 
into the Wells Fargo Center right now, you would find him still hiding in the fucking penalty box. Hiding from Donald Brashear, who got kicked out because the Ottawa Senators decided Rob Ray said, I'm going to make him a third man in. I'm not going to fight him. I'm going to fight somebody else. And then Brashear will jump in because this is what fighters do. And then get him kicked out. And then we'll jump him. We'll jump Brashear and get him fucking booted from this game. So we can just run roughshod over this much better Flyers team who's up by 5-2. to two. You had Patrick Sharp in this game. Patrick Sharp, who couldn't play for the Broad Street Bullies, right off a face-off, not even question it, drop his gloves and just start hammering on a senator. You know why? Because that senator's, that senator's logo is bullshit. Who wants to be a fucking senator? Jeff Sessions was a senator. Fuck the senators. Fuck Ottawa. This team is garbage. And the Flyers just decided we're going to roll them. We're going to get them 5-2. to And then we're going to beat the shit out of them. And that's Mark Retty got in the fight in this game. Bum ass fucking Mark Rat Retty. Who won a cup everywhere but in Philadelphia. Bum ass Mark Recky lost his elbow pad and just started beating a fucking senator over the head with it. Because this is hockey. This is old time hockey in South Philadelphia. You can't step to us and say we're going to beat you up. Even if we're winning, you can't step to us and say we're going to beat you up in front of these fans. And this team did what it had to do. Even the skilled players, the Sharps, the Reckies, the LeClairs, all went in the way Brandon Manning had to eventually just step up to Patrick Maroon and say, time to take my beating. Whether it was just or not, hockey has decided I have to take my beating. So I'm going to do it. Mark Havlat never took his beating. He fucking hid. As all hell broke loose. As Mark Recky is pointing at the Ottawa Senators bench and saying, you fucked up. You did this. Martin Havlat's hiding in the penalty box. Just won't take what he has coming to him. It was a whole elaborate fucking scheme by this team. You think of Zdeno Chara, who's like the size of Joel Embiid, fighting a goddamn forward. But no. Martin Havlat can't fight his own battle because this team was supposed to win a cup. I've been on some, I've been a fan of some great Flyers teams that were supposed to win. This one included. This team, 419 penalty minutes, brawling, best players, fucking Ronix hurt, not even in this game, brawling, winning 5-2. If you don't have this kind of balls, you can't win a cup. This Flyers team got to a Final Four, not on skill, not on fucking skill. This team wasn't one of the four best teams in the National Hockey League. They had balls. They had fucking balls. I will never love another Flyers game the way I do this game. Game 7 against the Bruins, 3-0 comeback. Beautiful, beautiful moment in this team's history. 
that fucking overtime win, Drew against the Blackhawks. Oh my god. Oh my god. Pride. Nothing like this. This is Flyers fucking hockey. Orange and black. Broad Street Bulls. Steph Driver. Again. In 2008, the NHL changed its policy about disclosing injuries, giving teams the flexibility of not having to disclose the specific nature of player injuries. This gave rise to the now rampant upper body and lower body injuries. Sometimes we don't even get that much. The whole point of this rule was to protect players, air quotes. Let's say a player injured their wrist. If other teams don't know that it is specifically the wrist that is injured, it may protect the player from some extra checking and slashing. And if it is the wrist, maybe the skater won't be able to elevate the puck, which means goalies will have a competitive advantage knowing that this is something that's bothering the skater. So upper body, lower body. I think the wrist is the upper body, considering it's attached to the arms, which are definitely above the waist, but... When you're standing, your wrists hang below your waist. So would that be lower bot? I have no idea. This whole thing is fucking confusing. That's why the morning of November 14th, 2015 was so jarring. We had no warning. No prep time. The only signs were an early exit from practice three days prior even though the player in question had played against the Washington Capitals on the 12th of November. In fact, our very own Charlie O'Connor had this to say. Like Medvedev, Mark Streit fought the puck all game long, but at least the Russian blue liner had an excuse as he was coming off a long layoff. Streit had no such excuse, or did he? The Swiss defenseman sat out, the final 10 minutes of the Flyers' loss to the Avalanche on Tuesday and then left practice early on Wednesday morning. Could Stripe be playing through an injury? It would certainly help to explain his poor play last night, particularly on the power play, as he consistently struggled to handle the puck at the blue line and hold the point against clear attempts. So clearly, now we know we're talking about Mark Stripe. The way this announcement unraveled toyed with all of my emotions. Every single one of them. So first, at 9.16 a.m., the Flyers released a tweet saying that Taylor Lear and Shane Gossespierre, Shane, Shane, Shane Ghost, had been recalled from Lehigh Valley. This is it! This is the moment that we've been waiting for! This tweet was Im immediately followed by the news that R.J. Umberger and Mark Streit had been placed on injured reserve while Pierre-Edward Belmar had been activated from IR. Who cares, baby? I just heard Ghost is coming to town. At 9.44 a.m., it all came crashing down. Lives were changed. Innocence was lost. The tweet read, Injury update. Mark Streit will have surgery on Tuesday morning to repair a pubic plate detachment. He is expected to be out for six weeks. My dick cost a late night fee. Yo dick got the HIV. My dick plays on the double feature screen. Yo dick went straight to DVD. My dick bigger than a bridge. Yo dick look like a little kid's. My dick large like the Chargers. The whole team. Yo shit look like you 14. My dick. 
pubic plate detachment. What does what what is that? Is that a penis? Did Mark Stray break his penis? Did Mark Stray's dick fall off? Everyone in the greater Philadelphia area turned to Google. We all saw that the surgery to repair this malady included screws and rods, where no human wants to have screws and rods. For the first time in the history of the NHL, probably, we were begging for less detail. Why couldn't they have left it at lower body? In the end, Mark Stray got to spend two months off the ice tending to his penis, and the world was introduced to Ghost. All's well that ends well, or something. Mark Stride is now a penguin, so I don't know if things have really ended well. But this is the story about how Mark Stride's dick fell off. And that is all the time we have today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed some of our favorite, funny, weird, annoying, endearing Flyers memories. I want to hear from you because I know we all have them. We all are going through a really tough season where there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. So I want to hear what your favorite Flyers funny, weird, annoying, endearing stories are. Give me a call, 267-585-4370. Leave a voicemail. I'll compile within the next week, and we'll have a whole separate episode of listener stories. This is Steph Driver. Thank you for listening to Broad Street Hockey Radio. Thank you for listening for 100 episodes. We plan to be here for many hundreds more. Maybe one day we'll have a party. Probably not because I'm terrible at planning. Good night, good hockey. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.